All right, we're going to start off like we usually do these mornings with first a few questions about, well, usually last week's lesson, but let's see how it goes. So, first question, what is a practical way in which we can pursue holiness? According to Paul in 1 Thessalonians, what is a practical way in which we can pursue holiness? Pursue holiness. Hmm? Chapter 3. I'm obviously not saying it clearly enough. Brotherly love. Brotherly love. In verse 12 of chapter 3. And the Lord make it to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. Alright, next question. What does Paul, what does Paul mention to the Thessalonians is God's will? What does Paul mention to the Thessalonians is God's will? Last week, chapter 4. But before that, sanctification, yes. And part of that is abstaining from fornication, yes. Alright, let me read a verse to you and you tell me where it is. The Bible says, This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. No, but first John. First John one verse five. All right. Okay, the Bible says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. No. No. <laughs> but it is a first and second. <laughs> huh? Not first Timothy. It also says, the verse before it says, but in a great house they are not 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy 2 verse 21. It's good to have you back, Sean. <laughs> Alright, let's get another one. The Bible says, delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of of thy heart. Psalm 37 verse 4. That was too easy. <laughs> Alright, let's get one more. Alright, the Bible says, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord 
and unto us by the will of God. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Who do you think said that? Paul said that. Okay. That helps a bit. Take a guess. That's close. One Corinthians is close. Second Corinthians is <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Second Corinthians, chapter eight, and verse. 5. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5. And this they did not as we hope, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Part of the will of God is giving yourself to the Lord. Alright, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this this morning. Um, thank you Lord that we can um, have your word open before us and look forward to what you'll be teaching us this morning. Um, Father, I pray that you would please um, help me to, to be a, a vessel unto honor, Lord, and sanctified and meet for the Master's use. And Lord, that you would um, speak through me this morning. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that you would also prepare their hearts for the message. And um, we want you to be glorified, Lord. We want you to teach us something that we may be um, better vessels for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Christina's class is staying, so I don't know if there's anyone in any other class. I don't. Oh, there they go. Good. All right, so we're going to continue with First um, Thessalonians. You can open to First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four, and last week we started at verse one of chapter four. The Bible says in in verse one it says, "Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren." And exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God so that so you would abound more and more. Thank you. Alright, so in that first verse we saw that Paul earnestly asks them. He urges these Christians by Christ's authority and for Christ's sake that they would walk in a way that is pleasing to God. He wants them to walk in a way that pleases God. And we also saw that, as you'll see in the middle of, the, of verse 1, it says, as you received of us, how you ought to walk. It's not just receiving of the truth that is good and necessary, but it is to ultimately please God. It comes by walking in the way that God wants you to walk. We continue with verse 2. It says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Paul then makes reference to a few commandments he gave them and essentially telling them to apply these commandments. 
if they want to please God. So he, he says, to the end you may be established. To the end you may walk and please God. And then he says, remember the commandments I gave you. If you follow these things, then you will walk in a way that's pleasing to God. And we said it's not about this legalism or this law-keeping thing that he is promoting at all. He's basically giving basic guidelines, simple things that you can apply in your life in a way that pleases God. So he mentions things like loving the brethren. You understand? It's not, it's not thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's how do I live? How do I become more like Christ that I might please God? We also mentioned that the purpose of this walking in a way that pleases God, the purpose of it is that you may have fellowship with your Lord. It's to have fellowship. As Jesus said in, in John 8 verse 29, he says, The Father never leaves me, for I do always the things that please Him. And we also read in 1 John, how that God is light and in Him is no darkness. And if we have fellowship, if we want to have fellowship with God, we also need to be in the light as God is in the light. And then verse 3, where we stopped last week, we said, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain, abstain from fornication. So we started looking at, at what is God's will for our lives and I gave some introductory thoughts on the topic of the will of God. It's, it's something that a lot of people wonder about. It's something that a lot of people ask questions about. What is God's will for my life? And um, I set myself up in such a way that I could almost go into this topic immediately. But as I was preparing, I realized there are a few things in verse 3 that the Lord wants me to speak about first. So we'll first do that and then we'll get into God's will. So the first thing, let's get into verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. God's will for each Christian is to be sanctified. Now, is that, is that unclear? Is, is, is that, do you need some special revelation to understand this aspect of God's will? Or can every Christian understand that God's will is for them to live in a sanctified way? Now, sanctification essentially is to increase in holiness or to increase in separateness, if I could put it like that. Increase in holiness and increase in separateness. Now, if I ask you, are you increasing in sanctification? Are you increasing in holiness? That is in the purity in the way you conduct yourself. And separateness, it's not separateness in a, in a geographical sense. It's not like the world is there and there is, that's where they are committing sin and so I stay away from that. That's not what it's saying. It's saying separateness in your desires, separateness in your, in your motives. Is there a separateness that exists between you and the world? Your desires need to be too different that it can almost not be blended in with the world. When someone looks at your desires and the way you speak and the way you live, it shouldn't be so close to the world that it can almost merge with whatever. It can mix in. It should, be, it should separate naturally, like oil and water separates. It, there shouldn't be a, a mixing that can take place between your life, your desires, your motives, and the world's. Now, obviously, the topic of sanctification is, is a quite... Uh, all-encompassing statement. It, it covers a lot of things. It covers a lot of Christian conduct. 
And this is why Paul points them back in verse 2. He points them to specific commandments that they can live out in their day to day. And we looked at some of those commandments last week. But he also is paving the way for himself going forward as in everything he's going to deal with coming next. And so we'll see the first thing he does is fornication. So he immediately goes from sanctification, that's a broad, that's a broad topic, and then he starts zoning in on specifics. And you'll see that throughout the rest of the book. And so the first subtopic, as I said, is that you should abstain from fornication. Now, fornication is essentially sexual immorality or sexual sin, right? That's what, that's what fornication is. The Greek word for that is porneia. Now you can hear how that sounds very close to pornography. That's where we get that word. So porneia is, is this sexual sin that he is talking about here. And I find it interesting that that is the very first thing that comes to his mind when he thinks of sanctification. I mean, he could think of so many things probably that Christians need to do in their life, that they need to separate themselves from, that they need to grow in holiness towards. But the first thing he mentions is this sexual sin. And to be honest with you, I don't think that Paul would have started with something else if he was addressing our society today. I don't think Paul would have necessarily changed his message if he was writing this letter to our generation. I want to read a quote to you from a sermon. It says, It should be patently obvious to all of us that we live in a sex-mad culture. That we live in a culture that is indulging itself in, in, the, in every conceivable and inconceivable sexual activity. In fact, it probably would tax our imagination and mine beyond its ability to conceive of a more sexually perverted and immoral society than the one which we love. Not only is sexual sin tolerated in any form, by anyone, with anyone else, any time, any place, in any way, but more than just being tolerated, it is advocated, it is promoted, it is marketed through every media means possible. Now, when I was younger, um, thank God that I don't watch that anymore, but you had music videos and it is incredible. I don't even know what it looks like now, but back even a few years ago, it was incredible to see how sexually driven music was. Movies are sexually driven. These days you, can't, you can barely watch a comedy without it being sexual. It's impossible. And so sex is basically what, in a way, makes the world go round. It is advocated in the sense that it's not spoken against. Abstinence is a foreign concept. What's being spoken of is safe sex. So in other words, promoting sex, just do it in a way that doesn't get you pregnant or makes you get HIV. That couldn't be further from God's planned way of sex. God also says in Hebrews, he speaks of the marriage bed being undefiled and that it is sex is for the marriage and that it is a beautiful thing. Now we are surrounded by a society that's desperately looking for some sort of hope or meaning or fulfillment in a fleeting world that offers none of that. This world offers you no hope 
no meaning, no fulfillment. But so many of us pursue that. And people are forever basically on a pleasure hunt. And part of that pleasure hunt is fornication, sexual immorality. Could it be that Paul found himself in an equally deprived society 2,000 years ago? When he was speaking to these Thessalonians, could it be that he found himself in a society that was even worse or as bad as we are? I want to make this claim that I think it was worse than what we have now. And I'll give you some reasons for that. So the first thing is the culture of the Thessalonians. So, obviously, the Thessalonians, it was, it was in, Greek, in Greece, and so the language that they spoke was Greek, and it was Roman culture. And I looked at some of the words that the Greeks use to, ex- to, to, what did I say? to explain their sexual immorality, to, to define specific things in their sexual misconduct. So... The first word, as we already said, is porneia. Now, porneia means the purchasable one. In other words, the one you buy, a prostitute. So, prostitution was not just like it is today. In fact, it was almost promoted by society. It wasn't looked down so much as it is today. It was almost a common thing to see. It is the purchasable one. The next word that we find in Greek is Pornuain, pornuain. And this means essentially pimping or the filthy business of making a living by prostitution. Okay. So this is something else that they had in that culture. The other word is palake, which means concubine. It is a slave for sexual pleasure. It was incredibly common to be married, have a few concubines, and then have this next word, eterai, which is a sexual friend. It was common for a man to be married because the woman's main, the, the wife's main job was to have children and to take care of the children. That was it. Cook food and so on. And the sexual pleasures came from the concubines and the sexual friends. Now, the sexual friend is someone who's not bought. It is someone who's willingly that friend. And then the other word that also used is moikos, moikos, which is adultery. Now, it's in a culture where your god, Zeus, raped other goddesses. That is the culture that Paul is speaking to. They had temple prostitutes where you could, if you sleep with a temple prostitute, it is a way of approaching your deity. Talk about a convenient religion. But this is, the, this is the culture that Paul is talking to. This is the culture of these Thessalonian believers who came to salvation out of this. Most of them probably had concubines. Some of them may have been living this life in service to their gods. And all of these things were legal and common and promoted by the culture. We know from Paul's other letters in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, Paul speaks about a man who slept with his, or has has an ongoing relationship with his stepmother. And he says that is, this is not even common among the Gentiles. In Romans 1 verse 24 to 28, 
um, Paul speaks and he, he mentions these people who God essentially gave up to their own uncleanly, uncleanness through the lusts of their own flesh to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And he speaks about women leaving the natural use and men leaving the natural use of the woman and just basically giving themselves up to their, their sexual sins. I want you to notice that in Romans 1 verse 24 it says this, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through what? Through the lusts of their own hearts. The worst place, the most deprived state in which you can be is when God gives you up to do what you want to do. And that is dangerous. You know, the world tells you, tell, will tell you to follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. That is when you are essentially lining yourself up to be given over by God to everything that your heart desires. And we know that our hearts are desperately wicked. Now, a study, just a small quote from a study that was done on Thessalonica. It says Thessalonica had experienced a sexual revolution which included homosexuality, pedophilia, effeminate transvestism, which is men dressing up like women, um, and every form of fornication and sexual perversion. Now imagine going into that, amongst that, where it's not the, the, the low-class people of society. It is the rich people who are living like this. It is everyone who is giving themselves over to this type of life. And the reason I say it's worse than what we have today, I think it's more common, but the reason I say it's worse than we have today, there was no Christian culture whatsoever established yet. We live in a society where Christianity is, yes, now almost slowly trying to be forced out of society, but it has a, a rich history of missionaries. It has a rich history of people having come here and Christian foundations being laid and laws being according to the Bible and all these types of things. We have that culture now. We have a great majority of people who, even though they're not saved, at least live by Christian principles. They didn't have that. Their principles were things like their God who raped another goddess. Do you understand? They're, they're prostitutes in their temples. It was a completely different culture. We still have a Christian culture to some extent, even though it is slowly eroding away. Now, why do I elaborate on this? Why do I tell you about this state of these Christians? Or this, this place where these Christians are living? The first thing is we need to remember that Paul went to preach the gospel to found a church and to save these people from this pornographic culture. Paul spent a very short time there, probably about a month, and he knew that these people found themselves now all of a sudden like an island in a sea of paganism. They were part of it, and now they are taken out of that, but they're still surrounded by all these things. Paul understands that there are things that are going to push them and pull them off of this island back into this sea of paganism. He knows that evil communications corrupt good manners. Remember, Paul had not seen these people for quite some time now. He had left them there because he was being persecuted, so he had to go away. Now these people are alone there. They have the basics of Christianity. They're in a pagan society Paul hadn't seen them for a while, and so he's concerned for them. He's concerned for their holy living, that they may walk in a way that pleases 
God. Anyone, you and I included, who returns to the sin that we have been saved from, whether the sin is condoned by society or not. You see, that sin, this sexual life that these people lived was condoned by society. It wasn't frowned upon by society. It's easy for us to conduct conduct ourselves in a way that lines up with what society expects. But what if society goes exactly against what the Bible teaches? So, if anyone, you and I included, returns to the sin we have been saved from, we are not walking in a way that is pleasing to God. We are not being sanctified. We are not being sanctified. So the question is, how far away do we have to stay? How far away from this sexual sin, this whatever sin it is that you have been saved from, sins that you have been saved from, how far do you need to stay away? Well, I think the word sanctified explains. Far enough to be separate. Far enough for yourself to be separate from those things that you are not just easily mixed in. So the question is, are you holding on to sin? Are there things that you are holding on to that are taking you away from pleasing God? Even if it's not sexual sin, it is to to you and I that the Spirit inspired this text. We can learn from this text. So this is what I want you to take from it. Culture should never be a measuring stick for our morality. Culture should never be a measuring stick for our morality. The church is not called to merely be more moral than the world. That's not what we're called to. So if this is where God is, and this is complete and utter, let's say, immorality. So there's God, there's complete and utter immorality. We are not called to be, let's say this is where the world's standing currently in terms of immorality. We're not called to be behind the world at, at a certain distance. Because in 10 years from now the world is here and we stand where the world was a few years ago. And so our morality should not shift as the world's morality shifts. Ours should be based on a firm foundation. Ours should be based on Scripture. And this is what Paul's concern is. Paul's concern is is that these people are going to justify their conduct because of what society teaches. And we find ourselves with that temptation every day. I at least do not do that. Or I am not as bad as. Or I stay away from because. Like, w- stay away from things. Do things the Bible says, irrespective of where culture finds itself. Because there have been times in history where culture find it's found itself very close to lining up with what Scripture teaches. But there are times where culture finds itself very far away. And if the sh- church shifts along with wherever the culture is, just stays a little bit more moral, we are letting ourselves in for a dark time. And I think the church finds itself there in quite a big way these days. So take a stand and make, an un, and make it an unshifting biblical one. Stand on Scripture. Stand on what God has said. And then you won't waver. Then you won't be tossed about with everything that comes your way. If you stand on what God has said. Now, let's get into, into verse 3 where it says, For this is the will of God. As I told you, we will be 
studying what the will of God is for us. And so the will of God. Paul mentions the topic of the will of God in the context of sanctification, as we just saw. The reason for that is, is there are always two wills that are at play. The world, flesh, and the devil, that is your sinful state, your nature, and God's will. And those wills are always contrary to one another. So whose will you will follow is the most important decision you can make in your life. And it will set the course of your future. Whose will you will follow? Will you follow your will, your desires, or God's? Last week we saw that Jesus had a desire to live according to God's will. Jesus said, let not my will be done, but thy will be done. In many other places he says that I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, Peter, Paul, and John spoke about the will of God. They lived out the will of God. David, in Psalm 143, verse 10, says that. He asked, teach me to do thy will. Teach me to do thy will. And so, the desire from, I want to say, from Jesus Christ through all the apostles and David and these Old Testament saints is one of, Lord, show me your will. Teach me your will that I might do your will. And this brings us to a critical divide. This brings us to a divide between, I want to say, the three different parts of the will of God. The one is the hidden will of God. The other is the general or the revealed will of God. And then lastly, the specific will of God. Now, if you look at it as three different parts, so you have the first part is the general will of God. So general will of God, it's something that God has revealed to us, something that all of us should, all Christians should conduct themselves to live in this way. Then there's the hidden will of God. Now the hidden will of God, as it says in Deuteronomy 29.29, it says, For the secret things belong unto the Lord, but those things which He has revealed belong to us. And so there's a revealed, and then there's the hidden will of God. And then there's the one that everyone actually wants to know about, is the specific will of God. Is Does God want me to marry this or this person? Does God want me to take this job? Does God want me to move here or not move here? That's what people pray about. That's what people's questions are. But I want to say this one cannot exist without these two. Specific will of God is a function of God's general will. So God reveals His will. God will show you what the way He wants you to live. And then if you conduct your life in such a way according to what God wants you to live, then say his hidden will was, for example, let's say Vincent Solicit was to go to Russia. If they did not live out the general will of God, if they did not conduct themselves in a way that was pleasing to God, do you think that God would have sent them to Russia if they were living contrary to what God wants them to do? No. So God's general will needs to be lived out, and then his hidden will will result in his specific will for your life. So, that makes it very clear which one we need to study. We need to study God's general, God's revealed will. Because that is the only one that will help us to line ourselves, align ourselves with God's specific will. Because we can't do anything about God's hidden will. We can only align ourselves with God's general will. So, 
Let's get into God's general rule. The first one we find in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the will of God is that you be saved. The will of God is that you be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Do you see there that in verse 4? Who will, his will, his desire is to have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will is that you be saved. Saved from God's wrath. Saved from eternal destruction. Saved to live free and serving God. So much so was it His will that He made the plan of salvation. He sent His Son in our place. We are all Sinners, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And God is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to be saved. And so if you've sinned, you have uh, transgressed the law. And if you've transgressed the law, you are guilty. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, you will stand before God at judgment, and you will be guilty because of the sin that you have committed. And because when you stand before God and He finds you guilty, if He's a good judge, He has to send people to hell. He's a good judge, He has to be a righteous, He has to have a righteous judgment. And so God's desire is not that. God commends His love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that is what Jesus, that's why Jesus came, is to make this plan of salvation. That at the end we can be made the righteousness of God. We stand before God because of Jesus Christ washing His blood. And we stand before God in complete righteousness. The righteousness of God. How unmerited is that? How amazing is that? That you can stand before the holy creator God of this universe. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, your sin is removed. And you stand in complete righteousness before God. That is mercy. That is grace. And so God's desire is not to send people to hell. God's desire is to save them. Have a look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 verse 38. John 6 38. Jesus is speaking and He says, For I came down from heaven... Not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up 
at that last day. Now the question is, have you seen Jesus? Not, I'm not talking about in the flesh. Have you been shown who Jesus is? Because if you see Jesus, if you see who he is, two things will happen. The first thing is you will see how great he is. You will see how his love and his grace has been shown towards you. The other thing that will happen is you will see how not so great you are in comparison to who he is. And when those two things happen and you see how great he is that he is able to save and you see yourself that you are nowhere near to saving yourself through anything good that you can do. When that happens and you place your trust, it says here in verse 14, it says, and believe on him that, and, and believe on him, he may have everlasting life. So, have you believed on him? It's difficult to believe on someone who you haven't seen. And so if you have, someone hasn't shown you who Jesus is, I ask that you would please come and see me or someone and ask, show me Jesus, that I, am, I may believe on him. But starting at this point, I have to say that no one who has not come to Christ in true repentance and saving faith has any claim to knowing the rest of God's will. This is the starting point. This is where your relationship with God starts. If you have not been saved, you cannot expect for God to reveal the rest of His will to you. So, the second thing, salvation. Secondly, spiritual. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to have to speed up. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So if you do not understand the will of the Lord, what are you? Unwise, right? Okay. It says, Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Why, why, are, you, why are you unwise if you do not understand what the will of the Lord is? Why are you foolish? Because it is revealed, right? You are literally not making an effort to see what God has said. Okay? That's why you're unwise. So, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, verse 18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So the second thing is Spirit-filled. Now, what does it mean practically to be spirit-filled? I would say to be spirit-filled essentially means to be word-filled. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means it is breathed, it is through His Spirit. We know that holy men were moved by the Spirit, right? As they wrote the Scriptures. So, to be spirit-filled is to be word-filled. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it speaks about the spiritual things which are spiritually discerned. So the things that are given by the Spirit, which is the Word, is spiritually discerned. So we need the Spirit in order to understand what He has written. And so to be Spirit-filled is to be Word-filled. When the Word dominates us, the Spirit controls us because you are yielded to what the Word says. So if the Word is something that you find yourself daily in, you are studying it, you are applying it, you are finding the wisdom that it gives you for your daily life, you are reading and you're saying, Lord, show me, what must I take from this? 
What are you trying to tell me? If that is your approach, if you're being word-filled, you will be spirit-filled. The one leads to the other. It means you are essentially yielded to what God has said. And so you are spirit-filled. The next thing is sanctified. So that is in First Thessalonians 4 verse 3. Um, spirit-filled. Spirit-filled, sanctified. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Okay, we've been studying this verse, so you know what it says. It says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. So, like I said, it means to be separated. It means to be consecrated. Separated from sin and consecrated to God. It is to put away sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from evil. You see there's a separation from sin. Okay? Then it says in, the, in verse 21 of 2 Timothy 2, it says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, separate, he shall be a vessel unto honor. Then it says sanctified. So now you've been set aside, consecrated, and then it says, and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. It's not just about stopping to sin. Many people can make good changes in their life to stop sinning in a certain way. It doesn't mean you're saved. All right? What this is saying is, is it's a separate, I remove, I separate myself from sin, I separate my desires from those sinful things, and then I consecrate. It means I give my life to God in service. You may be familiar with that song that says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. And that is what sanctification is. Um, in, um, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5, which, I, which we read this morning, there it says, And they gave themselves, according to the will of God, first to God and then unto us. So to give yourself to God, to give yourself as a sacrifice to God... Is, but not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice is part of God's will. That is what part of, that's part of sanctification. Part of after you've put off the sin, you need to put on the good works. The good works, the things that things like the fruit of the spirit. Anything that is in obedience to what God wants to do. Then, fourthly, suffering. Suffering, this is always a nice one. 1 Peter 3. After you say spiritual sanctified, there's suffering. The suffering has two parts. I don't know. I don't think so. Suffering through service. So 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for the reason of the hope that is in you, meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed and um, that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so, 
that you suffer for well-doing than for evil. You see there that for the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil. And it's speaking in the context of you basically standing up and answering every man and giving them a reason for hope that is in you. So you are standing up for what Christ or what God has done. You are standing up for truth. You are standing up for what the Bible says. You are speaking to people about it. And if you're doing that and you suffer for that, it is part of God's will. It's not a suffering because of sin. It's not discipline. It's not, it's not that you sin and then you, God disciplines you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about doing good and suffering for doing good. In James chapter 1 verse, verse um, 2, and 2 to 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, one thing, nothing. So what is the end? What is the end of this um, suffering? Why does God, why is it His will for you to suffer? It says here, that you may have patience may have a perfect work, that you may be perfect, that is to say complete, and entire one thing. God wants to change you. He wants to make you more like the Son. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, it says, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that we have suffered a while, listen, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and save. After that you have suffered a while. So God's will is to make you into a better Christian, into someone who can please him, into the image of Jesus Christ. It's like any parent. When your child does something horrible, you don't just leave them to do whatever they want. Now you can leave them to do whatever they want, but there is no, there's no, you let them go through suffering, in other words, discipline, so that they may become into a better person. Right? And so in the same way, God wants to let us through suffering become that because He loves us more. And Paul had first-hand knowledge of this. You may recall in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul speaks about the thorn in his flesh and that he says that in my weakness I am strong. And that because now he is depending on Christ, he is depending on God to sustain him. God is his strength when he is weak, when he is going through all kinds of revilings through people and all kinds of persecutions, he finds his strength in God. And then lastly, the will of God is that we became the first Thessalonians chapter 5. I know the word is thankful, but I wrote a different one here to state it in my essays. Satisfied or content or living in thankfulness. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We know that God wants us to give thanks. We've spoken about this in the past and how it's not for everything that we have to give thanks, but in everything, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. Because unthankfulness, that's not a word by the way. I, I thought that was a word. Apparently it's a word. Not being thankful, I guess. 
unthankfulness is rebellion to what God has allowed for me. That's essentially what unthankfulness is. The rebellion to what God has given, what God has made to us, and saying, I'm not happy with what I'm given. Don't live in rebellion toward God, but rather thank you for all things you have. A few weeks ago, I can't remember when, but Elizabeth Elliot said a quote, and she says, God promised to supply all you need. What you don't have, you don't need right now. God promised to supply all you need. What you don't have right now, you don't need now. Now, if this is God's vehicle, it's to be saved, to be spiritual, to be sanctified, to be suffering in service, and to be satisfied, to be thankful. You may say, just remember how we wonder about finding the answers that I'm looking for regarding the job, regarding the spouse, regarding whatever. But I did find it. And I'll show you why. So there's one final thing. And this is very important. You can open to you. Psalm. Psalms chapter 7. If you're saved, if you're spiritual, if you're sanctified, if you're suffering, if you're satisfied, you can do whatever you want. And marry whoever you want. Now, this comes with a massive easiness. But in a way, it's as simple as that. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. This doesn't mean he will fulfill your desires. It means you will want His desires in you. He will give you the desires of your heart. So the things that you desire will be His desires. And so if you're saved, spiritual, suffer, sanctified suffering and satisfied, your desires will start immediately lining up with what God has desired for you. And so your will, to a great extent, becomes God's will. And that's why I say do whatever you want. Because if you if you live according to this, if you're living according to the principles of the Bible, you will want a wife or a husband that lines up with those principles. You will want to make a decision, a life change that lines up with those principles. You will have God in you, through His Spirit, leading you into the things He wants you to do. Because if these things are in your life, this is controlling your world. So the question you ask yourself is, is what I am doing or the decision I am making promoting or demoting God's revealed will? So the reason I do this like this this is not general. This is God's specific will. I'm trying to find something in the guy when I was younger. I'm saved. I read the Bible because I was in church, but that doesn't mean I'm saved. Anyway. So I would see numbers like that, and then I would think of that means something. So I would say, okay, so the fourth book of the Bible, the seventh chapter, and then the, and then I find out the rest of the seventh chapter. And so then it must be the forty-seventh book, and the eighth chapter, or whatever it is. That's not how you find God's will like this. So, 
general, this is revealed in Scripture. Then we have the specific will of God, right? This is a foundation. This is your foundation. If you are these things, that is your foundation. Everything flows from that. So from here, God can, God can show you, go that way. He can also tell you to, that's a no entry sign, to not do that. And then also, there's this Psalm 37 principle of His will, His desires, shall be your desires, and those things are in God. So when it comes to the specific will of God, go here, go here, go here, my desires become His desires, it's all based on this. And if you don't have God's general will, salt it out in your life, you're not saved, as I said, the rest doesn't matter. But if you're saved and you, you want to be spiritual, spend time in God's Word, devote your life to Him, study in it and apply it, be sanctified, be cleansed, be separate, become holy, suffer for doing it, that will come naturally. If you stand up, if you're spiritual and you're living the way God wants you to live, you will suffer for service. And remember always to be satisfied. Be thankful and live according to that. And He will definitely guide you and show you the specific will for your life. So in closing, I want to say that the will of God is a Christ-conscious, spiritual life that is centered around doing God's work. Be faithful in what has been revealed. Make decisions that promote you growing in God's will. And He will fulfill His specific will in your life. Amen. Father, thank you for, for your will. Thank you, Lord, that the will is good. Thank you, Lord, that it is good for us to follow it. Lord, thank you that it is not some mysticism, some far-fetched idea, something we need to devote on our lives to try and figure out. But that you've revealed it to us, Lord, and that you want us to live a life that is directed and guided by your truth. And so may we devote ourselves to you knowing um, of to applying your world, Lord. That we will live a life that is that is guided in the direction you want us to Thank you, Lord, for truly the clear and basic instruction that you give us through your word. And uh, ask Lord that you please help us to take these principles with us into every day. That we would every day be more like Christ. That we would be willing to suffer if it means that we have to for your sake. That we would be thankful for everything that we have for you. We would be devoted to fulfilling your work. Praise to Jesus. Amen.